This is Game Theory, your podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, we head to Ukraine to talk about the Russian invasion and the stability-instability paradox. In the heart of winter 2022, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave the order that international diplomats have been fearing for months or even years. Russia launched a full-scale invasion of its neighbor, Ukraine. The biggest fear to come out of the conflict, the possibility of escalation to World War III and nuclear annihilation. A quick reminder that we discussed nuclear deterrence and policy way back in episode five. If you'd like to catch up, you can. The link to that episode is in the show notes. You may be asking if Ukraine has regional or even global allies, how is it possible that something like this can happen? If the threat of nuclear war is there, why does Russia feel it's safe to do this? The idea is called the stability-instability paradox. Now, Chris and I have some knowledge of the situation, but we are certainly not experts. And we recommend experts to follow and read in this episode. But this paradox is a new idea of warfare, one that only came to fruition in the age of nuclear war. The idea is that if everyone is pointing nukes at each other, it's incredibly unsafe for global war. But it becomes very easy to show regional aggression. We're perhaps watching this paradox play out in real time as we head toward the spring and summer months of 2022. This paradox raises a sobering question. If having nuclear capabilities allows a country to be this aggressive, how motivated will more countries be to develop them? And welcome to another episode of Game Theory, part, the intro 2.0, Chris, our podcast about strategy. That's right, it's not a show making. about news, narratives, takes, gambling, sports, sports random or Twitter gambling. articles, etc. Well, it's it sort of is about gambling, well, I suppose. Yeah, I, I guess all Game say. Theory kind of is a gamble, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it really, it, I mean, it's just a bunch of uh, elaborate bluffing. And speaking of bluffing, our episode today, and we're trying to be lighthearted about this, but there's war happening in Eastern Europe. And are there active wars elsewhere? I kind of, I suspect that that's sort of perpetual. Well, I think the situation in Tigray has not uh, improved substantially, uh, at least since the last time I checked a couple of weeks ago. Sure. And as we record this, we're about a week into Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, times are tense. Times, in are, Europe times right now. definitely are tense. So we're going to have uh, fun with this because there are only two outcomes. One is that there's a war and it eventually ends, and two is that we are all either immediately or over a long period of uh, struggle annihilated from from nuclear warfare. So there's no reason to panic at this point in time, especially because I'm not eligible to be drafted in some sort of large scale event, and uh, that's just my sort of situation. But I, we need to talk about where we've been. It's been a month. Um, the reason is that our dear aunt Lorraine passed away and we needed to go in Wyoming and be with some family and Chris and I were not able to be there at the same time. So it took a long time to coordinate. And so I guess we could dedicate this, uh, this episode to our aunt who never listened to a podcast episode, but was definitely very supportive of the fact that we were doing something on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> stupid nice lady. She, one time she, when, when she was living in Colorado, went to a speech and debate tournament of mine that was there. And if you've ever, if you've ever done speech and debate or watched it, you know it's somewhere between like watching amateur golf and waiting for your grass to grow 
in terms yeah. of excitement. Yes. But she came out and she endured the the tedium anyway just because she was so supportive. And, uh, that's just the kind of person she was. Yeah, she was great. I, I have a similar story where um went and played hockey in the town where she lived in and she made me um, biscuits and gravy for breakfast after the game. It was delicious, which is really great. So that's where we've been. That's our update. We are doing better at trying to make... Our goal right now is about three-ish episodes per month, and as the podcast audience grows, we will start to make make an effort to do it weekly. We have a bunch of suggestions and topics from some people, and we have a bunch lined up. The next episode is going to be about, um, this will be super exciting for portions of it, we're going to have our first lady on the show, which is my wife, and we're going to talk about the medical match system and what that's all about and how weird that is. So that's what we've got coming up in the show. Remember, this is on YouTube if you want to see our mugs. Uh, we're recording this actually before work, so we look far better than we do when we're drinking whiskey when we record this in the, in the evening. Chris combed his hair, which is kind of weird for me to see. Yeah, I had to work really hard to find that comb. I'm not sure where I placed it, but somehow it wound up in the wrong drawer. I would like the magician that helped you straighten your beard edges to come over and help me out with that same thing. Okay, well, first of all, <laughs> it's pronounced protractor. Protractor. And second okay. of all, yeah, for a nominal fee, I'll go, go over and help you. All right, so all of this stuff's on YouTube. You can watch on Spotify. All of that, our sources are should be available in the show notes. Um, there's also, if you listen on Spotify, there will be prompts and polls you can participate in and keep those open for a year. And if you do that, we will respond to them. If you like the show, share it, all that other shit that uh, podcast hosts say at the bidding. So let's talk about what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. The basic facts of the matter are, after a long period of standoffs and, and things to do with various allies and other portions of the world, the Ukraine or Ukraine, which used to be part of the Soviet Union and has long history with various ethnic groups in Eastern Europe and the Hungarian plain and, and the steppes of Europe. Uh, due to their allies in the West, Russia has invaded Ukraine. That happened as we record this somewhere, depending on when you're listening to seven to 20 days ago or so. Um, the entire world has condemned that. There are sanctions, there are responses, but nobody has really moved in. Interestingly, I find that a lot of countries have sort of allowed their citizens to become vigilantes and the entire internet is on this and there's a lot of misinformation. But right now, the gist of it is that one developed nation has essentially, developed-ish nation has essentially invaded another developed-ish nation. So it's a pretty intense situation. Yeah, so if you couldn't tell by just the general words that Nick used and that I'm going to use throughout the rest of the episode, we're not experts on this by any stretch of the right. imagination. And one thing you should not do, dear listener, is take your understanding of this conflict from us. Uh, instead, what you should do is find experts, and we'll identify some experts throughout the show, Nick. But the point is, this is a really complex situation. It's very tense, uh, and the stakes are really high. You said uh, it's case of a developed-ish nation, which is a hilarious shot at Russia, uh, invading <laughs> another sovereign nation. Uh, used to be in the Soviet Union together right. and are no longer. And, and my understanding is that Vladimir Putin, who's the president of Russia, basically just wants to relive the Soviet dream. I mean, he's a guy for whom the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 just didn't happen. And if you're an astute listener and pay attention or to current events... You'll be, you might be asking yourself, well, why are you guys highlighting this conflict and not any of the others that have occurred in the last, I don't know, 20 years or so? Right. The real answer to that is that this one is a case of classic imperialism by a major nuclear power. And it's the first standoff between the two biggest, I guess, powers in the world right. uh, since 
pretty much World War II. Uh, NATO is right on Ukraine's doorstep, and you know that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and that was basically established to balance Soviet power. And then on the other side, Russia, which is obviously the largest state uh, to come out of the Soviet Union, is still the largest country in the world in terms of land area, uh, and is the largest nuclear power in the world. And that kind of near direct conflict is about as high stakes as it gets. Yeah. So the nuclear portion of this is why I think it's most it's it's super intense. Of course, this is not to belittle, and this is all very. We need to talk about this because all of what I'm about to say is relevant to what we're going to be talking about, which is the stability instability paradox, which is something we've alluded to before. We discussed nuclear weapons and nuclear standoffs, and um, you explained it really great using an office. Uh, a scene from The Office, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about again here. But um, when when Israel is in conflict with some of its regional neighbors, there can be nuclear weapons involved or insinuated there. One of the other really intense regional situations in the in the world, which has always been that way since uh, the rise of Islam, is Pakistan and India. They have nuclear weapons, and so there's some tensions there. And so whenever a power, a nuclear power, is in uh, an aggressive mindset. Everyone's on high alert because you're like, this is the end of times because this, the, these, these weapons have the ability, uh, they have the ability to do that. I also do want to state that, um, and just, just for full disclosure that you and I compared to most Americans, I would, I would argue that you and I have an above a- average understanding of some aspects of this. You're uh, of course educated in, in nuclear policy. That's like re- readily Googleable information that you nuclear weapons are something that you know a lot about. And you talk about, I have read everything that Leo Tolstoy has ever written. And I understand a lot more about the history of R- Russia and the Soviet union than the average person. Nowhere yeah, near academic th- level, but we, c- we have a little bit of history here. That doesn't make us experts, no. Like we said before, but nope. you know, we we're, we're not we're not completely unacquainted with with what we're talking about today. Uh, the basic idea for this whole nuclear standoff is really complicated. It it gets simplified a whole lot, especially in the age of Twitter. Uh, but uh, Nick, like you said, uh, my nuclear policy understanding comes from uh, books like this one, this uh, masterpiece, "The Evolution of Nuclear Strategy," uh, by Lawrence Friedman and Jeffrey Michaels. Uh, it's basically just a matter of opening these kinds of books and reading them. Uh, there's a whole lot of sordid history, and it's really grim, and there's a lot of discussions about how many millions of people would be killed in one situation or another, and that's kind of on the table now. You know, the the nuclear stockpiles in the United States and Russia are a fraction of what they were uh, at their largest in the Cold War. I mean, each side had over like 30,000 nuclear weapons at various points, right? Uh, and now we have... 1,500 deployed nuclear weapons or so uh, because of a treaty between the United States and Russia. Right. Uh, but that that doesn't mean anything is... Uh, it doesn't mean it's less dire, I yeah, guess I should yeah. say. Well, no, it only takes like 12 for us to be in like a humanitarian, are we going to survive situation? Well, one. Yeah. I mean, one, one nuclear weapon would fundamentally change the face of the earth for everyone everywhere. I mean, yeah. it, it just... It, it, it would completely usher in a new like phase of history. Yeah. So that is, it's, it's a, it's a precipice beyond which there is no returning back to how things were. Right. So this, this draws into a new, a relatively new concept of war called the stability instability uh, paradox, which is only relevant in the age of nuclear weapons. And it's something that academics have sort of figured out as the deployment and testing of nuclear weapons has happened through the forties and the sixties. Now I want to go back and talk about the office scene that you used to describe the threat of violence versus violence this is Jim and Dwight. And this is the best way to describe a nuclear standoff and why it's so intense. Yeah. So 
You can go back and reference our previous episode on nuclear deterrence, where I discussed this kind of in more detail. Uh, but the basic situation from the office is, I think Jim is trying to talk to Pam, and Dwight is trying to get involved, and and he is mad at Jim for not letting him know what he's typing to Pam. And, and so he threatens Jim. He says, I'm going to write you up for not working. And then Jim responds immediately with, I'm going to write you up for not working. And then Dwight just has to resign and goes, okay, fine. Well played. Neither of us will write the other up for not working. Right. So for Dwight, that's going nuclear. Like any kind of reporting, any kind of appeal to authority with his like adolescent love of people in uniform and management positions, that's like the worst case scenario. So change that over to nuclear weapons. If Dwight is the Soviet Union and Jim is the United States just trying to live his life and the Soviet Union threatens the United States, then the United States just threatens the Soviet Union back. And at that point, both parties agree, okay, we're just not going to do this. But we know right. the threats are there. Right. And, and that's so, really the key point. Like, Yes. You know, sometimes, depending on who you ask, there's a very real question of, how we use nuclear weapons today. So if I were to ask the average person, or let, let me ask you this, Nick. When was the Thanks last time I'm very, I'm the United average. States used atomic weapons? I'm beautifully average. The last time the United States used atomic weapons. So for me, it's about the reason you buy guns is to show off that you have guns. So I'm going to say that the last time we exploded a nuclear weapon was probably some test in the 60s. But the last time we used one, I would imagine was when we scheduled some sort of missile test, which was probably in the last six months. So not an unreasonable answer. I think the most recent test was actually much, much more recent than yeah, that. I know, yeah. But the point is, when I say use, people think explode or test or something right. like that. There's a large body of people in the U.S. nuclear enterprise and you know international relations theory at large who would argue that the last time we used nuclear weapons is actually like right now, like this second. And they argue that because just having the weapon, just merely possessing it and having control over it represents use because it represents a credible threat. Yeah. And so there's like an ongoing tension that just can't be resolved. I mean, I know we kind of forgot about nuclear deterrence in the 90s when the U.S. emerged in this unipolar post-Cold War moment where we kind of established the the marching orders for the rest of the world yeah and i know we kind of lost sight of it you know other than like the terrorist threat post 9 11 uh, and especially now that climate change is taking over as like a really you know like a number one priority issue for a lot of people um but it's ever present we, yeah, it's we live in a there. nuclear age and there's no really no going back from that i don't know how many countries have them but more than you would think we talk about pakistan and india most people are surprised to hear that israel has is nuclear capabilities i think that they were one of the countries in the last five to ten years where their arsenal was going up um most countries their arsenal is trying to go down i think those three countries it was in the last little bit was going up not a lot well, like we it's, have it's from that digits. video you remember that video uh, end of the world oh end of the world yes that's such china a india one. israel france pakistan Russia, the UK, and us. <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, that's a good one. I love. I do love that video. Was that from FunnyJunk.com? We might have linked to that in the show notes. It's a great video. That was one of the oh, original no. videos that made me love YouTube. Anyway, so part of this is that we are not at war with Russia. And ever, I saw this uh, meme on TikTok where it was a Harry Potter scene where they remember one of the famous scenes, and I think it's Harry Potter three where they run in and they get caught by McGonagall, and she's like. Why is it when something happens, it's always you three, and in the meme, it was Russia, the U.S., and China. And I'm like, ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which, which one was which? 
Uh, I think Harry was the U.S., obviously, and Ron was China because of the red thing. And then, <laughs> I mean, that's how I would, I think off the top of my head, China was in the middle. But um, part of this is the, the regionality portion of it. Now, uh, nerds will tell you that the U.S. and Russia do share a border, and that is sort of true across the Bering Strait in Alaska and Siberia. I'm going to be very clear. Um, I think that the Siberians and the American Siberians who live in Alaska are probably more loyal to one another and want everyone to leave them alone. The, this is between Moscow and D.C. because that it's essentially the, the, it's the number one and number three largest countries in the world are, by geography are, are Russia and the United States, respectively. What we're talking about in the Stability Instability Index is because there's, Moscow and D.C. are worlds apart, there is a carved out middle where a nuclear power has the capability of becoming aggressive regionally because there's like a weird gray area that the, the like a shield almost that the nuclear threat provides. Yeah. So at this point, I think it's probably valuable to kind of define some terms. One of the key ideas in this whole idea of stability, instability is concept of what is a strategic weapon versus yeah. like some other kind of weapon. So it's kind of vague and it depends on who you ask, but basically a weapon can be considered strategic if it allows one country to launch a major intercontinental attack against another country that does unacceptable damage, like mass destruction level damage. And I think this term strategic is applied just because it has the ability to have major influences on like the broader geopolitical conflict, as opposed to like a guy with a gun running through the street. That's not a strategic weapon. That's, a, you know, that's a tactical weapon for a soldier completing an operation in a specific area. And so that's kind of on a different echelon, I guess you could say of conflict. So the basic idea of the stability instability paradox is this. At the strategic level, so this level of like high level intercontinental unacceptable damage attacks where you could fundamentally shift the balance of power. At that level, when you have the Dwight and Jim from the office balanced power, mutually assured destruction scenario, a lot of people would argue, and I think history demonstrates, that that's actually really stable. We haven't gone to war with Russia, like you said earlier, Nick. And Literally the reason never. for that is that we have this kind of strategic balance. Yeah. Where the instability comes from and where the paradox comes from is that you can think of the strategic stability as kind of like a bridge. And underneath that bridge, there's like space at the regional level because that's not where the conflict is happening. You know, th this conflict isn't happening on America's front yard. It's happening on Russia's. It's right. happening on Ukraine's. Right. And that's why and I so said that, that thing about Siberia. Like, even though we do share a border with them, that does not imply regionality. Just because we are physically close at a pole on the planet Earth does not imply regionality. The, the Russia-America conflict is happening in boardrooms and conference rooms and on Zoom in Washington, D.C. And, and Moscow. And that is, like you said, it's, it's, you know, the two pawns at the center of the board and they're just there. Right. So this overarching bridge of strategic stability creates instability at the regional level because if Dwight knows that Jim is going to write him up for not working, but he's not going to write him up for, say, pushing his desk toys over into Jim's space right. or hanging up on, in the middle of a phone call, which I think he does in like episode one, then right. he can go ahead and just do it and he can get away with it. And if you apply that to the actual international relations scene, 
this strategic stability creates space at the regional level for kind of adventurism and imperialism and basically pushing the limit to see how far you can go. Right. Russia yes. has a history of doing that. Well, and so does Jim. It's the exact same thing. So even if Dwight writes up Jim for all of the pranks he pulls, if Michael Scott or Jill or whoever else, is it Jill? Jan. Jan. Jan from the office. If they don't do anything about Jim's stuff and they're just like, yeah, it's just annoying. You have to fucking deal with it. It doesn't matter. He can just do whatever he wants. And he knows where the line is. Like, you're going to get fired for wearing a tuxedo when there's a new boss, but you're not going to get fired for putting all of Dwight's stuff in the vending machine. That yeah, means that exactly. Jim's like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. So Russia, I mean, the, I, off the top of my head, so, so Russia as a country, not the Soviet Union, so post-electricity, post-nuclear war, stability and stability index, people have cited the, uh, this Ukraine aggression, this war, as the third major thing that Russia has done. The two other obvious ones are essentially invading Georgia and annexing and invading Ukraine. And in, in uh, it's a peninsula? Is Crimea an island or a peninsula? It's a peninsula, yes. So that was 2014, which, by the way, he does shit when there are Olympics, just... Something to throw out there for any, any future Olympic years we have coming up. Every single time there's an Olympics. And always when they're in China and Russia, by the way. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, if only there was some way to determine where the Olympics go. <laughs> oh, uh, by so, the way, I just wanted to note for you, I did this in my sports podcast. You see that China banned Russian and Belarus Paralympians? No. This is the first strategic severance between China and Russia. Wild. Interesting. The, yeah, the fascinating. Anyway, thickens. Yes, definitely. And we know that Russia and China sort of share a border as well. Um, there's a big country in the middle of them. But like, like we were talking about with Jim and, and Dwight in the office, this sort of regional battles, even if Dwight does launch his, essentially, his essential nuke, it, it, it's not a launch for him. It's like a threat. Like, I have nukes. I have nukes. I have nukes. I'm going to do all this. I'm going to do all this. And Jim's like, well, it's not going to matter because you're not going to drop one because then we'll both die. So... Yep, and it helps also that the the kind of parallel breaks because Jim doesn't actually care about getting written up. Yeah, he he doesn't consider the threat to be credible, and it's mostly just for comic relief. But yeah, you're you're right. I mean, having the threat there and being able to hold that threat over somebody's head allows you to get away with smaller and smaller things, like Russia invading Georgia, and literally literally overnight. Russian soldiers will like pick up the fence and move it farther into Georgia. They'll like physically just change the border like a few yards at a time. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's sort of the exact point. And this is um, not to be critical of the United States, but to be critical of the United States, the United States is capable of doing the same thing. Um, and as a historian and a medieval historian, people ignore medieval history uh, just because nobody knows that much about it. It's like, oh, the Catholic Church and Game of Thrones. No, it's not really like that. A lot of other regional powers and things like this are, are part of it. Guerrilla warfare and gang-invited warfare is nationalist warfare. This is, uh, and what we're seeing with the, the border of Mexico and a lot of cartel activity and whatnot, that's sort of the same thing. Um, it's just not under the Mexican flag. And we're seeing the exact same situation. But like this conflict that's happening on the southern U.S. border is only allowable because there's no real threat of dragging other international people into it. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that's a little bit different from the stability instability paradox because the basic point is that the strategic stability is the very thing that gives uh, an adventurous power space to do whatever they want. Sure. And in the case with drug cartels, they know that we're not going to nuke them. But you know, the, the, 
maybe we can clarify this by citing like an actual academic source. So, sure. so using the Sage Encyclopedia of Political Behavior. I'm on that one. The too. entry on the stability instability paradox uh, by uh, contributed by uh, S. Paul Caper. Uh, the entry reads as the likelihood of nuclear conflict. So conflict between two nuclear powers using nuclear weapons as that likelihood declines, the risk of conventional war, like what we're seeing in Ukraine increases and on the inverse, as the likelihood of nuclear conflict increases, the risk of conventional war declines. So this inverse relationship between the probability of nuclear and conventional military conflict is the stability instability paradox. Right. Yeah. So because it's, so unlikely there's more it's more likely there's going to be a ground defense like people are so sure that no one's going to drop a nuclear weapon that they're able to wage ground war kind of akin to i I think the last time and this is i I have a weird question for you now because the last time a major power in my brain did a very public invasion of another country was that the united states and iraq well i mean that wasn't the last time that that happened but that's what happened so, so like, if I were to rank, and no disrespect to Western Europe, but I would rank, like I said, with the Harry Potter metaphor, like, the big three. I'm not sure. I don't, I'm not a big historian of China. I don't know what China has done in the last 25 years. But I imagine that all three of them have kind of pushed the limit a little bit for what other neutral countries would have liked to have seen. Well, yeah, I mean... Obviously, the China-Taiwan situation is so complex that I don't even want to get into it. No, we want because it's it's politically sensitive. It's really complicated, and I'm also not a historian of China affairs. I do know that the quote-unquote People's Liberation Army, which is yeah. what they actually call their military, uh, hasn't fought a war since 1979. Right. So they're on a little bit of a different uh, experience spectrum than the United States. But yeah, I mean. Russia and the United States have used their military to achieve national security objectives abroad, uh, rightly or wrongly. You know, obviously, in this case, Russia is clearly in the wrong, and everybody basically in the world except Belarus agrees. Well, and that's just Russia. Um, and you can watch documentaries of that. I have plenty of recommendations on documentaries, which we'll get into on. If you want to stay abreast of this, we're going to get into some recommendations of follows and things that you can check out and things that I like and, uh, for sure. But now, so here's... Which I just told you, even China. China banned, that's crazy to me. That is enormous news, even though it's Paralympians and it's not the same thing as them. To me, that's enormous news. But uh, what is the situation when two people are in this regional situation, right? Like Russia and Ukraine share a border and they were once the same land. What if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, which is the situation in the, in the number one ranked rivalry in the history of the world, in my opinion, the two countries and region that hate each other the most, where it's the most dangerous and the most unstable is Pakistan and India. They both have nuclear weapons. So is there room for the stability instability index on that border, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Shorter answer is, yeah. I, 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 in fact, I think that's a really good way to describe the dynamics in general, I, I, I took a course through the Stimson Center, which is a great, it's a great uh, NGO for learning about strategic issues, especially in South Asia. Uh, and in that course, uh, the instructors discussed the stability instability paradox uh, at length. And they said, well, yeah, nuclear weapons really do 
form the basis of the uh, of the strategic dynamic between these two countries. So Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons, and and for the kind of like half historians out there, like I consider myself a half historian because I feel yeah. like I read something once. <laughs> but for the half historians out there who say, well, wait a minute. Ukraine agreed to give up its nuclear weapons. I want to quash that right now. Ukraine never had operational control of those weapons. They were physically located inside the country because the Soviet Union just dissolved in Christmas 1991. Yeah. But that does not mean that Ukraine was like a nuclear weapons state. They needed help getting rid of those nuclear weapons. They were never a nuclear power on par with Russia or even like smaller nuclear powers like North Korea. Like they, they did not, that did not happen. Uh, but returning to India, Pakistan... In a case where a much, much larger, more, I guess, mil more militarily powerful country like India yeah. and a smaller kind of belligerent neighbor in Pakistan, uh, when they both have nuclear weapons, the dynamic is different than when there's like a nuclear bully who can just browbeat and browbeat and browbeat. Right. The, the, the basic dynamic between India and Pakistan is that India has a huge military advantage in terms of size and in quality. And money. It, and and money, yeah. And there's obviously a huge amount of history between India and Pakistan. Basically, India, India, while it's becoming increasingly Hindu nationalist, was ostensibly supposed to be a post-British colonialism, uh, multi-ethnic uh, kind of. Uh, it basically supposed to be a, a diverse, pluralist state. To me, it uh, seemed like a lot of it was based in the idea of like being America East. Well, I, not I think quite like democratically a, elected republic, but like everybody's here and it is what it is. It's English people and natives, and yeah, in, in theory, it's supposed to be, I think, more pluralist than say Pakistan. Now, Pakistan, yeah. after the British Raj left South Asia, uh, basically just became the Muslim state. Yeah, uh, there used to be two parts of Pakistan. By the way, I don't know if you knew that. Uh, mm -hmm. What is present day Bangladesh used to be East Pakistan. It was uh -huh. physically just two different areas that do not share any borders of any kind, and are just Kinda split like by India. Ancient Rome, also. Like right. That. Yeah. So there's this rivalry between this Islamic Republic in Pakistan and this ostensibly pluralist democracy in India. And there is just so much deep ethnic religious based animosity between right. those two countries. Like there's not going to be like a peaceful resolution. And that especially comes into play when they have like land disputes, which they do in the, the northeast of Pakistan and northwest of India. Right. However, Pakistan, knowing that it's at a huge military disadvantage and probably couldn't fight off an Indian invasion at any time, decided to balance the scales in its favor. And it did that by acquiring nuclear weapons. So Pakistan, this much smaller country with a much smaller military, was able to kind of counterbalance the Indian threat of invasion by building weapons that are so powerful, so dangerous, and such a credible threat that... India knows it's going to sustain unacceptable damage and loss, both to its military and to its civilian population, if it decides to engage in war with Pakistan. So that is basically strategic stability. Yeah, uh, It's a little bit different because, like I said, India's military is so much bigger and Pakistan is using weapons instead of bodies to try right, to offset right, right, right. that. Uh, and since these are two regional powers, strategic stability looks a little bit different than it does with the U.S. and Russia, which are on different continents and in different hemispheres. All right, so I have two questions for you. I'm going to ask you these questions because I understand that, like, while you're not an expert, but you're sort of an expert. You're in, like, and it, it, I understand how, like, logarithms work. Like, you're in the 1% of nuclear understanding of all human beings on the planet, but there are 8 billion people on the planet. But well, you're, I, you know I, more I did than say me. the Holiday Inn Express last night. Yeah, correct. So you're, you're, you're not an average citizen at this, and, like, 
you went to the University of Tennessee, which is where we developed nuclear weapons there in the middle of the desert in, in New Mexico. You understand all this. So I'm going to ask you two questions. Question number one is, does the fact that they share a border change anything compared when you compare the situation to Russia and the United States? And two, do you think this is an example of effective use of the weapon? Is this a better, is this maybe the best use ever? Is this a good use of this weapon? So to the first question, I do think, yes, the, the shared border between India and Pakistan fundamentally changes that dynamic compared to Russia and the United States. Why? Now, that said, a Does large it makes it easier to launch them? the Cold War, I mean, the Cold War basically took place in Europe. The United yeah. States yeah. has the luxury of being wedged between two large oceans and kind of separated from that just by geography. Yep. Uh, we have that privilege. However, the United States is in an alliance, NATO, like I mentioned earlier, where we have a treaty obligation to defend the territory of fellow alliance states as if it were our own. That's a that's a treaty obligation we have by being a part of that organization. Like Soviet Union so strength, yeah. In yeah. a sense, we kind of do share a border like through that alliance. Yeah. But given the size of the US nuclear stockpile and its importance in NATO's ability to establish strategic deterrence and the size of Russia's nuclear stockpile and given the relative balance and military prowess between Russia and NATO forces, for example, uh, I think it's basically just a magnified version of a regional conflict. And mm. I think that changes both the, the degree of conflict, the intensity of the conflict and the character of it a little bit. It's, it's not, you know, international relations theorists have this challenge where they try to come up with like overarching frameworks that they can use to like analyze the world. And you know, there's realism and, constructivism and all kinds of isms that various academics have written all these papers about trying to justify. And the ground truth is that it's very difficult to apply any one of those theories to every situation. And so I, I think that's one of the challenges we have here. Yeah. Uh, but to your second question, whether the India, Pakistan strategic stability, instability, Pakistan developing is, the nuke, was that a good use of it? Well, for Pakistan's national security interests. Yeah. Uh, for India's, well, I would say that India probably doesn't agree with that. I think they think Pakistan was out of line. Yeah, uh, you know, for <laughs> for people who are interested in nuclear nonproliferation, which is basically just like an idea that you know, people think nuclear weapons are bad. I happen to be in that camp, and that fewer <laughs> of them in the world makes the world a safer place. Yeah, I also agree with that. It, from from that perspective, I mean, a country makes itself more secure by getting nuclear weapons, but it also raises the risk of nuclear war. And accidental use, some kind of mistake, some kind of safety sure. failure where you get an unintended nuclear explosion. Yeah. Um, and by the way, that's not just dangerous to the people that are near the area where the weapon is or within whatever, the, however many miles the blast radius is. That's also a potential to like start a nuclear war. Because imagine you wake up in the morning and you see nuclear explosion rocks the United States, hits the Bay Area. You think, oh my goodness, what happened? We've been attacked by nuclear weapon, by nuclear power. We have to respond somehow. And in India and Pakistan, since they're right next to each other, it's very easy to like misattribute the, the potential to misattribute a nuclear strike is a lot higher, I think. Yeah. And so a safety accident could end up bringing about nuclear World War Three and making things like really out of hand and, and potentially like ending everything. Yes. So, and that's interesting. So from, from the non-proliferation perspective and from the perspective, I think, of like overall regional security and then because of that global security, I, th I think um, it's unfortunate 
that we have to have a nuclear standoff between India and Pakistan for there to be any kind of stability. Like of, of all the kinds of stability there are, I don't like nuclear strategic stability. Uh, yeah, and it's it's, it's I, such I, an I interesting like situation because I think when you put it when you put religion and history in there, it's a little different. So the United States and Russia have the benefit of in terms of their relationships with one, one with one another. It's it's new. Like we don't we have no real history with them. I, I think that there are a couple conflicts that I'd like to highlight here with regard to nuclear nonproliferation. We could talk about Pakistan, India. That is regional. That is literally ancient, and it has to do with two different religions. One of which is ancient, and the other one is like postmodern ancient. The other similar, ancient. okay, no. you like that? You like that? The because uh, Islam is seven hundred, what seven hundred uh, anno domini ish somewhere in there. Um, regardless, did you, did you just say anno domini? Yeah, Are you kidding me? Is that what it was? Is that what it is? Not the I mean, Latin. I mean, you're you're right, but that's like that's what, like you saying, some... oh, it's eight o'clock anti meridian. Hey, grow up. I would never say that. I would say it's uh, twenty hundred hours. Twenty twenty hundred hours. <laughs> Is that right? Did I do my math right? Listen, listen to me. If you're listening to me and you're not actively deployed somewhere in the world or European, your country's armed services, and you have your watch or cell phone or home clocks <laughs> set to 24 hour time, you are deranged. You are. You have I, I mean, lost your mind. I don't disagree. The day is divided in half for a reason. And that reason is taking uh, naps in the early afternoon. Yes. And just Shouts to Europe. Please get some, stop Europe. it. Get some help. The other postmodern ancient conflict i would say is israel and all of its neighbors right because there's uh judaism and islam involved there and that's that is a tale as old as time as well and so perhaps there's more stability as a result of this however when it was an arms race just to have the biggest wiener in the 60s it created a mess because if you have all of these what 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 probability is there of a, a mistake? How, how much more probability is there of, uh, of a mistake happening and an accidental explosion if you have 30,000 of them or whatever? It's like it's much better. So like if, if Israel has 80 and Pakistan has 100 or whatever, it's like, okay, there's enough that we could kill every single human being and maybe this will result in we're just going to yell at each other across borders. Like that'll be, that'll be better. And because it's like a divorce, right? And I don't want to be Colin Coward, but it's like a divorce. And you like look at India and Pakistan, there will never be peace. Never. There will Unless never be a situation where Sam Darnold, Sam Darnold can go to Pakistan. I think Sam Darnold could probably make the difference between India and Pakistan. <laughs> so Brian uh, James. Yeah. So, well, you're you're right to bring up Israel. I think it, it's it's a really really touchy situation, no matter how you, you look at it. Yeah. Please uh, and do if not you look at it from the nuclear don't point flood of view. Us. I don't want to deal with Israel people right now. So first of all, the United States has this funny, this hilarious thing where. They have basically like don't ask, don't tell about Israel's nuclear weapons. So officially, yeah. the United States does not know that uh, Israel has nuclear weapons. And I'm not, I, I'm not speaking for the government. I'm not a part of the government. But yeah. I mean, come on, you guys. <laughs> the problem with that, though, is that it is basically justification for other rival powers in the region, yeah. like Iran, Iran, for example, yeah. to want to get a nuclear weapon because they can point to that and say, well, these guys could just use their nuclear weapons to coerce us and conduct military operations, and they know we're not going to respond because we don't want to get nuked. So how do we secure our own interests? Well, we establish strategic stability by getting nuclear weapons, and then we can fight it out at the regional level. Once right. we protect ourselves in that way, then we're good to go. So a country having nuclear weapons, it, it, it incentivizes rival countries 
to get nuclear weapons and raise the risk of accidents, mistakes, calculate, miscalculations, all kinds of problems arise. And like nuclear weapons are bad, okay? Yeah, yeah. So just <laughs> the act of having them really does change things. And by the way, this whole idea of like nuclear accidents, like we haven't seen an accidental nuclear detonation. Yeah. Uh, we have, however, had very real accidents that could have changed like the face of the earth. So there's a book yeah. by Eric Schlosser that outlines uh, it's something called the Damascus Incident. Uh, basically, a couple of repairmen were, you know, were conducting some kind of maintenance operation on a nuclear silo uh, in the United States, and an accident happened. I think they used the wrong tool for the wrong job to try to uh, to tighten down a, a nut or something, and they dropped a wrench and it disconnected a fuel line and it led to an explosion. It was a conventional explosion. There was no nuclear yield, but I mean, people died. And there could have been a nuclear yield, and that would have like destroyed a huge, huge swath of territory in the United States. It's a strategic missile. There have also been incidents of the United States losing a nuclear weapon during a flyover in Spain. It simply fell from the plane. The United <laughs> States has also accidentally released a nuclear weapon over its own territory in North Carolina. And the, like the, I, I can't express to you how close we were to nuclear disaster when that happened there was like a switch that didn't go off and like we we i mean the safety mechanisms prevailed and there was no detonation but my goodness did we ever have a close shave with that one yeah and that's so, not like, the only situation hypothetical right? scenarios and like the longer nuclear weapons exist and the more people have to operate them and the more countries like the u.s and russia and china continue to modernize and, and grow and improve their arsenals the more chance there is of catastrophe taking place. Yeah, and it's not... And we are the ones with the money and the talent. I, mean, I know I have it confirmed in writing and on television with the guy looking in the camera saying that when the Soviet Union fell apart, the FBI and the CIA were tracking gang activity in Florida and an arms dealer who was selling them AK-47s offered them a nuclear weapon for a million dollars. That happened in the 90s. Now, it never, they, they baited the guy and they arrested the guy, but whether or not he was bullshitting them or was just going to give them a silo or whatever, the point is that that is theoretically possible. That the, that the FBI and the CIA had to intervene on this international gang arms deal for AK-47s and cocaine, and they were like, do these people have a fucking nuke? Is there a gang in Miami that was going to buy a nuclear weapon? And it, because nobody knows where all of them were in the Soviet Union and they needed help destroying them in the 90s, could you fucking imagine well, and it, like you know, think about that for international organizations like uh, like ISIS, for example. Yeah. Like if ISIS got a nuclear weapon, they drop how it that day. different would that the day. world look? Like yeah, if Al Qaeda had used a nuclear weapon in the terror attack on New York, or in a follow up yeah. terror attack. I mean, that's that's like that's the end times. That's it. Yeah. Can't. Yeah. Yeah. You, you absolutely can't have that kind of thing. And I, I mean, I I think you're right. Like in general, I know that your response is. I would rather not have anybody have them. And when you do have them, like you kind of navigate these weird little paradoxes, which is what we're talking about with the stability and instability index, because like Russia is essentially Jim in a not funny way where they're like, I know I'm going to get away with this at a certain point, because I know if Russia, if the United States escalates or if NATO, if Germany marches a hundred thousand people into Ukraine, like shit's going to get real and nobody wants that. So it's, it's, we're in the, we're in weird times with this. I will also say um, a lot of misinformation on the internet regarding videos. I would, Based on my time on TikTok and Instagram, I would say that about 40% of the videos are real and about 60% of them are people just reposting old shit to try to get content. Um, yeah, th this, is the, this is the time to make sure you're vetting sources and, yeah. and trust verified media. Like 
the New York Times, the Washington Post, Reuters, BBC, like trust established media sources because they know how to verify things. And uh, like the average person just does not. I mean, we're not we're not news professionals. We're not media professionals. Uh, and another thing to do in times like this is to trust the analysis of experts. Yes. Uh, the, the consensus to me seems to be, you know, based on like the experts that I follow and have read and, uh, and checked out that U.S. analysts pretty much got this right. I mean, not everybody was exactly right. It's a complex situation and nobody can you know, tell the future. Uh, but uh, a lot of people saw this coming. And uh, I'd like to I'd like to transition into the recommendations portion of the show yeah uh, nick like you said earlier we're recommending like people to follow yep. and voices to listen to on this uh the first i would like to recommend is uh, professor caitlin talmage uh professor talmage is a professor professor of international relations and is is an expert on this kind of thing uh, she has a thread on twitter uh from uh, from last week from the, the 24th of february and Professor Talmadge tweeted the following in a thread. In reference to the current uh, the, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, she said, This is about the clearest evidence I have ever seen for the stability-instability paradox. The notion that mutual vulnerability, a.k.a. MAD, mutual assured destruction, at the strategic nuclear level can actually make conflict more likely at lower rungs of the escalation ladder. In other words, at the regional level using non-nuclear weapons. Uh, Professor Talmadge went on to say deterrence theorists associated with a nuclear revolution often dismiss this idea, arguing that nuclear stalemate means both sides will avoid crises and conflicts out of fear that they could escalate. The result should be peace, stability, and less military competition. Yet Putin's behavior suggests that revisionist actors are not so inhibited and may instead use their strategic nuclear forces as a shield behind which they can pursue conventional aggression knowing their nuclear threats may deter outside intervention. That's as clear a summary as I can think of, and I think Professor Talmadge got it uh, exactly right. Yeah, so you can follow, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, of course. I also have a follow recommendation. Mine is on TikTok for those of you that partake and are not scared of having your data raped by China. Um, I have a, a recommendation as well. This guy is, I don't think that he is an academic professor. He has multiple... Uh, master's degrees. He is a former Army veteran. He was an, uh, an officer in the United States Army. He also has master's degrees from the University of Michigan at Johns Hopkins. He works for NATO as a planner and as a contractor data analyst. Um, and he's been essentially kind of commenting, commentating like a sport on the war the entire time. His at is at CP Scott. I'll hold it up to the camera. He's like this bald dude. He looks like that. Um, and he just sits on his chair and he sits in his car and he's like, this is what happened. This is what I think about this. And he is an expert. He's not somebody who's probably in the room right now making decisions, but he is invited to analyze these kinds of things. And he has been breaking down the kind of artillery and, and uh, communication systems that Russia and Ukraine have. He's commenting on the uh, foreign policy like China. He was the first person that I found on TikTok to, to mention that China was banning Belarusian and Russian athletes. This guy's he's he's someone that I like. Okay, well, if he wants to talk about a to topic, and you can tell that he's good because his videos are not mega viral. <laughs> they have a couple thousand, and I get many many thousands of more views for my my chess TikToks, and I'm not good at chess. So I can t I kind of in a weird way trust him more because not as many people are obsessed with him. I, I trust him more than I trust you as well. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. So um, kind of a heavy topic. Obviously, um, if we all die in a nuclear annihilation, thanks for subscribing. We really appreciate it. Almost made it a year. We were going to celebrate a year uh, coming up soon. I think our next episode will be our 26th or something, and that'll be a year for us, which will mean that we made it about uh, 
one every other week, Chris, which is not as good as I would like, but not not too bad. It's about how often the Red Wings win, so. Yeah, that's that that's true. So we got a lot of cool stuff coming up. As more people subscribe and more people check us out on YouTube and whatnot, we're gonna make an effort to make this a weekly podcast. So if you want more game theory content, force everyone in your life to to uh, to listen to it. We're gonna do medical match that's coming up, depending on when you're listening to this. We also got a bunch of stuff for the NFL draft, and we're gonna get into some lighter topics, but we simply can't have this podcast and can't have uh, Chris's expertise quote unquote and not not discuss this it's what's going on in the world that we need to talk about we can't be scared all right good talk Mm, good talk and we're live with this week's episode of game theory